Welcome back to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. It's been quite a while at this point, but really excited to bring this back. I am your host, Nicholas Agar-Johnson, and I'm here today with fellow hashtag basketball power ranker, Kevin Nye. Kevin, how are you doing? I am doing just fine, Nick. I'm happy to talk about basketball. And there's certainly a lot of basketball to talk about. So as I stated up top, Kevin is one of the other power rankers for the hashtag basketball NBA power rankings. And we do those every week as a website. But I wanted to sort of do a more season-long overview of all of the teams in the NBA. So let's get right into it with the Los Angeles Lakers, number one on the most recent hashtag basketball NBA power rankings. Is LeBron the MVP frontrunner? He's averaging 25, 8, and 8 on 54% from the floor, 41% from three-point range. The Lakers are currently at third in the West, but they're 16 and 6. They're basically on cruise control. They've had the league's best defense, and obviously LeBron in year 18 continues to be a huge part of why. So is he the MVP frontrunner in your mind? You know, I think he's got the narrative. Uh I would have him number one, yes. Um, I would accept him as low as maybe third. Uh, But to me, yes. He just is so completely dominant every game. You know, how many times do you look at a box score and it's like the second quarter and LeBron's got 12 points, six assists, five rebounds, and you're like, how how is he already doing this? You know, they've been playing for 14 minutes. And, And I mean, he's just... He just controls everything. He's shooting the three really well this season. I think he's up over 40% right now, um, which, you know, maybe not sustainable, but like there's, he's like a robot created for basketball and he's, he's incredible. He's my front runner. That's, that's all I can say. Shout out to Danny LaRue. LeBron James is a cyborg brought from the future to dominate basketball. Perfect. Um, You convinced me. Speaking of cyborgs brought from the future to dominate basketball, let's move on to the Los Angeles Clippers, who have a cyborg of their own in Kawhi Leonard, but they also have completely revived the career of Nick Batum, who went from the absolute end of the bench slash not playing in Charlotte last year to starting 22 games for the Clippers, playing 30 minutes a game and shooting 46% from three-point range. It's weird. I thought Luke Kennard and Marcus Morris were going to be a big deal for them because there was no way Nick Batum was going to be the guy or going to be a guy, let alone the guy. Uh, But apparently I was wrong. I mean, Marcus Morris is fine. uh, But I mean, who would have who would have predicted before the season that we were getting 30 minutes a game out of Nick Batum on one of the best teams in the league? And by the way, they are really freaking good. Paul George, none of it matters until the playoffs, but that guy is 48% from deep right now. He was like nine for 10 from three against the Cavs last night. I mean, just absurd. Paul George is having yet another ridiculous season, and it's unfortunate that people tend to think of the last three years of Paul George as Paul George the playoff player and seem to have forgotten Indiana Pacers Paul George as a playoff player. But let's move from the Clippers on to one of your teams for the power rankings, the Utah Jazz, recently of the 11-game winning streak. The Jazz are so good. Uh, I know it's a little bit unsustainable, but 
they haven't lost a game or they've lost, I'm sorry, they've lost one game since I think January 5th, January 6th was, was their second loss ago. So, I mean, over the course of basically a month, they've lost one game and it's just coming from all over. They've got six guys shooting 38% or better from deep Clarkson, Ingles, Conley, Boyan, O'Neal, and Mitchell and Mike Conley. I don't, I mean, I don't know if he gets a lifetime achievement award as an all-star this year. Cause he's not really deserving quite yet. I mean, cause there's so many guards that are just loaded in the West, but that guy looks so good shooting 40% from deep 17 points a game. He's taken a ton of pressure off of Mitchell. Like he just literally the last thing I saw in their game tonight before I jumped on to record this was Mike Conley hitting a three and forcing a timeout. Like he's just been so good again. Like, well, I should say again from a couple years ago, last year was rough, um, but they're good, man. They, they got a ton of shooters it helps to have a, you know, Rudy Gobert in the middle. Um, but they're crazy. Have you gotten to see much of them this year? I've seen a little bit of them. Really, I think Conley is the biggest story here. It would suck if his first All-Star game was this year's All-Star game. And, you know, any conversation about basketball this year has to come with the caveat of there are some really questionable things that are being done for business reasons, despite the fact that we're in the middle of the pandemic. And All-Star game in Atlanta, Georgia is kind of at the top of that list. So it would be really unfortunate if this was... Mike Conley's first all-star game on the one hand, but on the other hand, it would also be really weird if we get to the end of Mike Conley's career and he never made an all-star game. Do you think it's possible that Mike Conley makes the hall of fame without ever making an all-star game? Like he's been really good. And if he continues to be really good for several more years, eventually he'll have that kind of like, you know, staying power and that like career cumulative stats. I mean, maybe, probably not, but you know, it's, it's something to consider. I doubt that's ever happened before. If Utah manages to win the title this year and Conley is finals MVP, I think that's how he could potentially make it to the hall of fame without an all-star berth. But I think that's what it would take. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Fair. So up next, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the biggest story here is that of the top three in MVP candidates, Joel Embiid might arguably be the most surprising of them. He's putting up 28, 12, and 4. He's scoring at all three levels. He's absolutely ridiculous on the defensive end, and he's always had the talent to have this kind of season, but... Seeing him put it all together versus him being able to put it all together are two completely different things. Yeah, that's a a really good point. Um, I have a potentially hot take that I think he's going to sag back a little bit. You mentioned scoring from all three levels. Uh, I was looking at his basketball reference page, and uh, about 35% of his shots are between 10 feet and the three-point line, which, you know, is, is not like a bad amount or anything. It's it's a little more than a third. That's fine. Um, but on those shots, he's shooting like 55%, whereas he's never before shot more than about 42, 43%. And while it's fine to believe that like his jumper has improved, uh, that doesn't seem super sustainable to me. He's, he's shooting 60% between 16 and 23 feet. 
He's never shot higher. Well, that's not true. His rookie year, he shot 48%, but he basically didn't take any. Um, so like that seems a little fishy. I think he's also shooting 40 some percent from deep, which like he's a, he's a decent shooter and he can shoot from all three levels. But like you said, it, it may not even matter considering how good he's been on defense. Like that could be enough to carry him to the, at least to the top three. So speaking of the top three, let's move on to the Denver Nuggets and their MVP candidate center, Nikola Jokic, who's putting up 27, 12, and 9, which I almost have to repeat that, 27 points, 12 rebounds, and 9 assists tonight. I mean, I think it's just because in previous seasons, Nikola Jokic has always had a terrible October, November and we didn't play in October, November this year, so he's just an MVP candidate right out of the gate. Yeah, this guy is just so wild. Can you imagine how aggravating it would be to be like, I don't know, let, let's let's say you're a um, you're a LeBron James type, or you know, you're just a big dude who has spent their whole life, or like, imagine him against Dwight Howard of a couple of years ago, where Dwight Howard is this like chiseled out of stone, just physical menace like the the body that you would like see drawn up in a museum and then to see Jokic like lumbering like this is the last breath he's ever going to take and then he just like spins around hits a one-legged fadeaway 19 footer and then like twirls around throws a perfect and no look past for an alley I mean like it's got to be so frustrating but he's so good my only beef is that occasionally you'll see highlight reels of like, hey, look at this play that counted as an assist for Jokic, where like he passed the ball to a guy out top, the guy pump fakes, dribbles left, crosses over, spins into the paint, lays it up, and had the ball for like nine seconds, and Jokic gets an assist for it. It's my only beef, uh, but the guy's just unbelievable and so slow. <laughs> He's incredible. Nikola Jokic, every time he blows by someone, it's the slowest blow by in the NBA <laughs> since the last time he blows by someone. Yeah, I can't think of who he can even blow by, but it happens, and that's the crazy thing. Well, I think it happens because people somehow expect him to be even slower than he is, <laughs> which, you know, that would be a marvel in and of itself. Hard to believe. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess, in fairness to him, he's shooting so well from basically everywhere that, like, at some point you got to get up in his face and then he can, he can sort of, I don't even know what the word is plod around you. I can't think of a good word. Cause he sure doesn't scamper. Yes. Scamper and Nikola Jokic are basically antonyms. Yeah. Not, not a match. Yes, very much so. Anyway, moving on to number six, the Milwaukee Bucks. And Giannis has had a bit of a down year compared to last year, but that's unfair to him because last year he was ridiculous and this year he's slightly less ridiculous. But Chris Middleton has taken yet another leap this year. He's averaging 21, 6, and 6, 52% shooting from the floor, 46% shooting from three-point range, 93% from the free throw line. He's a much better passer than he was last year. That's really the area where his growth has been the most clear. And granted, it's not good for the Bucks that Giannis isn't quite looking as good as he was last year, but Chris Middleton has basically made up for it. Yeah, I have a uh, possibly controversial opinion on Chris Middleton and on somebody else uh, to make this comparison. But there's a weird um, connection, I think, between Middleton and Luca, 
where neither of them is like going to blow you away with their athleticism, but they can both get to any spot except Middleton makes all of the shots and Luca doesn't. Um, and so like, I don't think that Middleton could be a point guard and do what Luca does, but that like, there's something about their games that I, I find really similar where when asked to Middleton, just like he can beat you off the dribble um, he's not going to like throw down a monstrous dunk over anybody, but he can score 40 in a game. If he needs to, he can make flashy passes. He can find the open player. Um, he can rebound a bit. Like he just doesn't have to do that. Cause Giannis is on his team. I think another thing that's really similar between Middleton and Luca is that they're both six, eight ish, but they're really strong. And mm-hmm. Luca in particular is big and you know people sort of bring that up as weight concerns at times but (laughs) the flip side of that also is that he's sort of a wing but you know he could push even bigger guys around on the block and Middleton Mm -hmm. has that not as much as Luca I don't think but he has that to a similar sort of extent yeah he's just there's not really anywhere that he can't operate and it's like that that's sort of the opinion of Luca even though he's not you know, he's, he's surely not shooting 45% from deep like Middleton is. Um, but one other thing about that I want to touch on about Giannis there is like, I think some of his his statistical drop-off is um, is a little bit of Drew Holiday, you know, taking some of the pressure off of him, a little bit of like empowering DiVincenzo. Um, and I think it's maybe a little bit of like, they're just, they're just cruising. Like they know they're going to make the playoffs. That's when they have to really start making their adjustments. Also very fair. Certainly they're just cruising could be something that we could say about a number of teams. <laughs> Definitely. But one of those teams that I'm not sure this actually applies to really almost the opposite. In fact, the yeah. Boston Celtics, they have not had a win loss record that really sort of comports with the way that they've been playing. They've lost a couple of close games, but by far the thing that makes me the most I don't think excited is the right word because I'm not exactly a Boston Celtics fan but Jalen Brown has made a gigantic leap yet again this season he's I think the clearest first time all-star in the NBA this year he's up to 27 points he's been incredible defensively on the wing and he might even make an all-NBA team at the end of this year And Jalen Brown is my favorite Celtics since Bill Russell. And I don't (laughs) think it's particularly close. So if you have any Jalen Brown praise, feel free to heap it on here. But what are your thoughts on what you've seen from the Celtics this year? Uh, I'm going to be honest and say I haven't watched a ton of Celtics this year because like they're the Celtics. Um, Fair. But yeah, what I have seen is this guy is so good. Um, Like scary good. Uh, Just like you said as a ridiculous wing defender he suddenly looks like he can run an offense and you're like wait 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 what like they have another guy who can you can run an offense through like i think he's shooting 42 percent from three ish um which you know is he's been decent like decent to good over the last couple of years and now it's like oh yeah I, i'm i just turned 24 i got better and it's like yeah sure did Um, but like with Tatum out for what it was a week, two weeks, something like that. Um, and they've had, they've, I think part of their stumbles, you can really attribute to Kemba was 
kind of hurt and then slow to or he was hurt and then is kind of hurt as he's working back into shape tatum was out for a little bit marcus smart's out now they also don't really have a a particularly good big man rotation um but like jalen brown yeah if there's there is no world where he is not an all-star this year unless you know health comes into play but like that's you know not something we can control but he is he's ridiculous he's so good speaking of ridiculous the brooklyn nets the brooklyn nets are first on offense and last on defense (laughs) since the james harden trade kevin durant has not been peak kevin durant on the defensive end but that's to be expected given that he's literally coming back from an Achilles injury, which is easy to forget because he's been absolutely absurd on the offensive end. Kyrie has been atrocious on the defensive end. <laughs> James Harden has been iffy, but certainly better than Kyrie. And DeAndre Jordan as a starting center in the league is a bit of a lost prospect at this point. <laughs> so as a Cleveland Cavaliers fan who has directly benefited from the Nets deciding that DeAndre Jordan is a starting NBA center... What are your thoughts on the Brooklyn Nets this season? Well, I should start by saying that as a Cleveland Cavaliers fan, the first game that all three of those guys were together, the Harden-Durant-Irving trio, was the double overtime loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers, which was genuinely, I think, the best Cavs basketball moment since LeBron left. Um I mean, what realistically, what's going to compare? That was awesome. Um, Sexton just Sexton. I think between the two overtimes, hit consecutive threes on Irving twice, and then Durant on three straight possessions. And you're just like, this this probably isn't a good sign for the Brooklyn Nets. Um, I'm sure they're going to make a trade somewhere, but like, what's it going to be? I hope it's not like a buyout market situation because those bum me out. Um, I mean, letting Jared Allen walk was not walk, but like getting rid of Jared Allen was a bold move uh, when your other option is DeAndre Jordan and Jeff Green, who, by the way, Jeff Green is currently shooting 45% on threes. So that's going to come crashing down in a big way relatively soon. uh, And the Nets are going to panic trade something. But like, what do they even have to trade? They don't have first round picks, I can tell you that much. They do not. And like, I mean, who's maybe maybe they try to deal Shamit? I don't I don't even know what you do at this point. Uh I'm sure it'll work out cuz you know, this is sort of how the NBA goes that you feel like, oh, that team can't possibly get another guy and then they get another guy. Um but I don't know. Harden, Durant, Irving and and Joe Harris as like the beneficiary of those guys creating ability is pretty dang cool. The offense is so much fun to watch. The defense is the problem. It's interesting. I think it might be the kind of situation sort of similar in a way to year one of the Miami Heat Heatles experience, where the first year they're sort of figuring things out. They're figuring out how everybody fits together. The offensive fit was immediate and obvious. The defensive fit is going to be more difficult. I think it's going to come down to buyout guys, and then really next season they're going to have a better title shot than they will this year. But let's keep it moving on down the list to number nine, the Phoenix Suns. They have two all-NBA guards in Chris Paul and Devin Booker. 
and the Suns are a net positive when Chris Paul plays without Devin Booker. They are a net positive when Devin Booker plays without Chris Paul, and they are a net negative when the two of them play together. And I think the vast majority of the reason for that is the kind of offensive fit issues that the Nets haven't had in the sense that Chris Paul and Devin Booker tend to like to operate in very similar sort of spots in the mid-range area. But the Suns were a team that obviously has been out of the playoffs for a while, and now it seems like they're a pretty clear playoff team, even in the Western Conference. Yeah, I think so. I think they will figure some of that out. I don't think they'll figure all of it out. You know, you knew it was, um, I don't know, how. To, I guess I'm thinking about how to say this right, but like you knew there would be some kinks to work out since they both are kind of ball dominant guards. Um, but there's been a lot of talk over the years of Devin Booker playing off ball and how he would be able to benefit from that and like catch and shoot ability and blah, blah, blah. And like, I think it'll still happen. Um, I don't really think Chris Paul defensively is, is much to write home about anymore. He's fine. Um, but you know, they're going to, I think they're eventually going to struggle a little more on defense. Um, they are fine right now. They're 15th in the league in opponent field goal percentage. So, you know, they're kind of uninspiring, but I don't know. I, I think it'll work out. I think one of the surprising things is that, there was a, a pretty big groundswell of, hey, DeAndre Ayton is going to catch like eight lobs a game from Chris Paul, and they haven't really worked it out yet. And that's, if that works out, like it just seems like there's no fit with Chris Paul and anyone yet. Maybe Mikhail Bridges, but um, hasn't really clicked with Booker, hasn't really clicked with Ayton yet. So if it does click, they're, they're going to be a, a real good playoff team, I would think. Up next, the Indiana Pacers. And the thing with the Indiana Pacers is that DeMontis Sabonis was an all-star and maybe a questionable all-star choice, but he has been dramatically better this year than last year when, again, he was an all-star, putting up 22 points, 12 rebounds, 6 assists per game, 56% from the floor, 36% from three-point range. And the Pacers have cooled off a bit after a really hot start. But they're still a clear playoff team, and they're still in the top 10 in the power rankings, and DeMontis Sabonis is a huge reason for why that's happening. He is. He's a monster. Um, I think the biggest reason for their dip, though, is just that crazy trade that they thought was getting them a healthy Karis Levert, and it turns out he had like a cancerous lump on his kidney or, or something just bizarre like that. So glad to hear that he had a, a successful surgery. Um, but and a quick thing about the Pacers that I have a, a big time eye on is that after years of Sabonis and Miles Turner being like a, a weird fit, Turner is averaging nearly four blocks per game, which I don't think has been done. Whiteside might have done it a few years ago, but basically nobody is averaging more than two and a half blocks a game in the last five years, and Turner might get four. Miles Turner has been absolutely ridiculous on the defensive end this year, and it's going to be an interesting defensive player of the year race. Looks like it's shaping up to be Rudy Gobert, Joel Embiid, and Miles Turner, and all three of those guys are ridiculous on the defensive end. But let's move on now to the Memphis Grizzlies, who have had a very strange season. 
I watched the Nets Grizzlies game where John Morant went down with his ankle injury, and I just assumed he was going to be out for two months. It looked really bad, and it looked like he was going to be out for a while, and I just thought that would sink the Grizzlies season. And instead, Ja only missed two weeks. And within that time, the Grizzlies have also, by the way, not played for 12 consecutive days due to health and safety protocol reasons. And yet here they are. John Morant came back after only two weeks. And as of Thursday morning, the Memphis Grizzlies were fifth in the Western Conference. Yeah, I think earlier I said something about how cool it was that the Jazz had basically only lost one game since early January. Same goes for Memphis, but it's a slightly different story. Um, it's they're they're hard to talk about because they didn't play for two weeks. Um, no, they're they're really good. They they seem to have a well-rounded thing going on. You know, getting a lot of um, versatility out of a lot of forwards: Kyle Anderson, Brandon Clark, Dylan Brooks. Um, you know, that kind of gang. Xavier Tillman has been pretty good. Um, they're they're fun. They're a spunky young team, and John Morant is amazing. A team that's very dissimilar, actually, up next at number 12, <laughs> the Portland Trailblazers. And we've been talking about first-time All-Stars with Mike Conley and Jalen Brown, and someone else who seemed to be on track for that was C.J. McCollum before he got injured. And now, despite averaging 27, four and five this year on 47% from the floor, 44% from three on 11 threes a game. He's had an absolutely ridiculous season. And obviously I hope that he gets healthy because the league is more fun when CJ McCollum is playing, but hopefully he did enough before he got hurt to earn that first all-star berth that he really deserved with his play before he went down with that injury. Yeah, that would be nice. He really... I mean, he's been good for several years, but his run in the bubble and then bringing that into this season as well uh, has just been really, really cool to see. Um, Such a bummer to see him get hurt. And they just, that team just has injury after injury, it seems. There's only one, no, two guys have played in 20 games this season, and they are Dame, of course, and Enos Cantor, which is not necessarily a great sign for your team. Yeah, especially on the defensive end, which is not exactly Portland's yeah. strong suit in the first place. They are almost record-settingly bad on defense, and they're the second-worst defense in the NBA. Are you really just going to subtweet me like that in the middle of the podcast? Yes, I am. <laughs> All right, well, let's move right along then. <laughs> so, up next at number 13, the Golden State Warriors, and... I wanted to talk a bit about James Weissman, who has started 16 of 20 games for the Warriors. He's averaging 12 points, six rebounds, and one assist. He's looked better on the defensive end just in game 20 versus game one of the NBA season, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, this was someone who played three games in college and basically has not played basketball in a long time. So pretty much every sign from him has been really encouraging, both in terms of who he already is as a player and also where he can grow to as a player. Biggest concern, though, is his hands look pretty bad. And, you know, unlike NBA defense, especially at the center position, you don't really learn to get better hands. I mean, you can improve in that over time, but that's more of an innate thing. And 
signs have not been positive on that front so far. But everything else looks good. Yeah. Um, I think the worst hands that I've seen was like Rudy Gobert five years ago. And they're like average now. So if, if Wiseman can pull that off, yeah, I think he'll be pretty good. He's 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 fun to watch like when they get out and run in because he's just a big, goofy, fast giant. Um, but yeah, he'll, he'll be... It'll be fun to keep an eye on him. He looks it looks promising, as promising as you can expect for you know a nineteen year old. He's going to make dumb mistakes, but like you said, he's basically played like twenty five basketball games since he was in high school. Moving on to another team that is doing surprisingly well with their youth movement, despite being a team that we don't think of as young, the San Antonio Spurs. And the bad news has been that the Marcus Aldridge has really looked like he aged five years in the last two months or so but DeJounte Murray Lonnie Walker and Keldon Johnson all look great and those are the guys that are going to be the future for this team so we'll see but you know the Spurs are once again pushing for a playoff berth as they tend to pretty much always do I feel like I've heard someone or anyone or everyone say that before I want to give a tiny little shout out to Patty Mills because the guy basically never starts a game and like once every two weeks, you'll look up and Patty Mills has hit eight threes in a game. Uh, he's just like this wonderful little spark plug who continues to be good. He's, I don't feel like there's ever been a, a season where you're like, Oh man, Patty Mills was a real liability. He's, he's always good. He's always fun, super high energy, great shooter, big Patty Mills fan. Shout out to Joey Mamone, whose website we are doing this podcast for, hashtag basketball. Gotta love the Australian player shout out. And we skipped the Ben Simmons shout out, which would have been not as positive. (laughs) So let's move on to the Atlanta Hawks. They have had a roller coaster ride, even in this roller coaster of a season. They started the year four and one, then they lost four straight games. Then they had another four and one stretch and they are two and four since then. Yeah. So lost two straight and are, or is it official now? Did they lose their third? Yeah. They just lost by 21 to uh, the jazz as we were speaking. Um, I wanted to shout out this insane run from Clint Capella over the last couple of weeks here. Um, he had consecutive games. He went 25, 15 and four blocks 23, 15, and three blocks, 27, 26 rebounds and five blocks, 13 points, 19 rebounds, 10 blocks. Like he's had two or more blocks in their last eight games. No, nine games coming into tonight. Uh, This guy's just ridiculous lately. He's double doubled in every game uh, except for, I'm sorry, double-digit rebounds in every game except for their first one. Um, he scored single-digit points a couple times, but like this guy is on uh, just an absolute tear. Speaking of double-double machines, the Cleveland Cavaliers <laughs> and your favorite Cleveland Cavalier, Andre Drummond. Oh, boy. So what are your thoughts on the Cavs this year? Oh, boy. Uh, for the first like two weeks, Andre Drummond was really fun. Uh, you know, he was putting up these crazy stat lines and he was scoring around the rim and the teammates were joking and pushing each other and like having a great old time. And over the last maybe week or two, um, he's still putting up crazy stat lines and he's still, 
uh, a basketball player, um, man, it has turned dark where he's, I think I saw today, he is leading the NBA in two point field goal attempts. That's impressive. Yeah. Uh, and it's great when, when he has those nights where he goes, you know, eight for 13 from the floor and is 19.16 rebounds. But then he also has games where, again, this is a guy who shoots everything between, you know, zero and eight feet. Uh, Over his last four games, he went nine for 24, two for seven, nine for 18, and four for 13. And they just keep feeding him the ball. And he's just missing. He's like drawing double teams and trying to go up and missing. And they look so much better when Jared Allen is on the floor. But I will shut up now. Uh, Drummond is rough and Colin Sexton is really good. So there's your summary. Jared Allen going from backing up DeAndre Jordan to backing up Andre Drummond has got to be the worst oh, beat man. in the league. Oh, I, I do think that, uh, that that will turn out. Okay. I, I assume, I don't actually think they'll buy out Drummond, but they might. Um, so they'll either buy out or try to trade trade drum. And I don't know what you can get for him. Um, Cause his contract is insane. Um, but they'll, they'll extend Jared Allen this summer and have that core of like a uh, Sexton Garland, Okoro Nance and uh, Jared Allen. Like that's a fun starting five. Any starting five with Jared Allen in it is a fun starting five. Well said, but let's move on to the Charlotte Hornets and LaMelo Ball has been, in my mind, one of the two frontrunners for Rookie of the Year. He's averaging 13, 6, and 6, playing mostly off the bench, although he has had a couple of starts recently. The defense has been bad, let's be honest about it, but it hasn't been anywhere near as bad as I expected, given how (laughs) atrocious he was when he was playing abroad on the defensive end. His three-point percentage, on the other hand, has been dramatically better than I expected. He's shooting 39% from deep at this point after, I don't think he even made it up to 39% from the floor in Australia (laughs) last year. So he's been incredibly fun to watch and he's also been really good. And I think he was going to be fun to watch either way, but I have been pleasantly surprised with how much he's already contributing to winning basketball. Did you see him pull the, the most irritating move, uh, last night was last night, maybe two nights ago to Embiid where Embiid thought he was dribbling out the clock and ball came sprinting up behind him with like seven seconds left in the game, steals it, turns around, hits a three, makes it like a five point game. And the Sixers are just like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. That was tough, tough to watch. (laughs) (laughs) I did not see that, but I mean, that's a positive sign, right? Like that's the kind of effort plays that, in his pre-draft, you know, people were like, oh, he's not making these effort plays. He's not trying all that hard. Like, maybe he was just not trying all that hard because he was a 15-year-old in a professional league in Lithuania for whatever reason. Yeah, I guess that'll that'll have an effect on your effort levels. I, I didn't try as hard when I played basketball in Lithuania, so... You know, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, your your Lithuanian career was not marked by high effort levels. We'll say that much. It was it was not. Speaking of effort levels, though, the New York Knicks are actually trying this year because Tom Thibodeau is their coach and they have had a top 10 defense for most of this season. But 
you are suspicious of that. Why are you suspicious of the Knicks' defensive rating? Are you just slandering the great city of New York City, or what's the deal here? Look, any chance I can get to slander a major metropolitan area, I'm going to take it. Um, But the thing that gets me is I believe last year, the best defense against the three allowed like 33, 33.5% shooting from deep. And the Knicks just somehow are holding their opponents to 31%. There's just no way that's sustainable. Like there's a couple nights ago, um, I think they played the Bulls. The Bulls were like six for 27 from three. And now the Bulls don't exactly have a great offense, but you know, it just seems a little fluky and a little small sample and, you know, maybe it'll regress in the form of like one team shooting 60% and then they go back to the Knicks winning games and, and it all evens out. But like, it just seems too low, like unsustainably good against the three. That's a very good point, And I completely agree. But I will also say on the flip side. So again, all stats as of Thursday morning, we are recording this pod on Thursday evening. Mm -hmm. But as of Thursday morning, the Knicks were sixth in the NBA in defensive rating per basketball reference. And last year, they were 23rd. (laughs) So I think the reality of the Knicks is probably somewhere in the 10 to 15 range, which is a big improvement. And, you know, credit to Thibodeau and credit for the Knicks players for actually getting better on that end. But I think that above average defense is really huge for them and really huge for the development of their younger players going forward. But sixth seems like a stretch. It does. But a team that's doing even better than that right now, the Houston Rockets have the best defense in the league since the James Harden trade. And, you know, comparing that to the net stat is massively oversimplifying things. I don't think James Harden was anywhere near that bad on the defensive end in either sense. I don't think he's made the Nets that much worse. I don't think he made Houston that much worse. But shout out to Steven Silas for getting this Island of Misfit Toys roster to be the best defense in the NBA. Yeah, it's been such a weird ride to look at, like, who's getting minutes for the Rockets. You know, they had the COVID issue right around the time Harden left and they had eight active players. So David Nwaba is getting starts. Like they're getting meaningful minutes from everyone. Um, the defense thing has been wild, but like who would have predicted that Jay Sean Tate would have started half their games so far, or, you know, cousins has started four games. Sterling Brown's playing a lot. Ben McLemore is, he's on the team. Um, you know, it's been, <laughs> it's been, uh, like a, they're kind of fun to root for now that Harden's gone. Is I think maybe that's my takeaway. I was always going to have fun rooting for the Rockets because of Boogie Cousins and Ben McLemore. Sure. But it's fun for everybody else to root for them too, honestly. <laughs> and I don't know. It seems like this is just such an easy opportunity for Harden slander, and I really don't want to trend in that direction. <laughs> but it is really cool just to see, you know, these are basically, you know, I said Island of Misfit Toys and... That's kind of mean, but, you know, honestly, like, this is a team of NBA players who, you know, John Wall, the Wizards, basically gave up on him, if we're being honest about it, and he's proving them wrong, I think, pretty clearly this season, and DeMarcus Cousins has had two 
miserable injury plagued years and now he's back he and playing pretty well yeah and christian wood is the ultimate island of misfit toys kind of player who bounced around in multiple different leagues for yeah. multiple different teams signed his long-term deal with the rockets and now he's putting up 24 and 11 it's it's fun yeah but would, wouldn't you rather pay mason Plumley or whichever Plumley detroit paid than christian wood though doesn't that like seem seem like a really good idea in hindsight yeah. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. We will get to Detroit. We are between... Do we have to? Technically, we do have to. I will just say oh. we're between 19 and 20 right now, and it's still going to be a while before we get to the Pistons. Oh, boy. <laughs> Speaking of Island of Misfit Toys, though, I don't think there is a more apt Island of Misfit Toys comparison than Fred Van Vliet setting the record for points scored by an undrafted player in an NBA game. And he broke the record of Moses Malone, who was drafted in the ABA. So the NBA says, oh no, he wasn't drafted. So he's basically breaking a record that kind of shouldn't have really been a record in the first place. And he is a lot more sort of fitting of the archetype of who I think of as undrafted players rather than hall of famer. And one of the (laughs) 10 or 15 best players ever in Moses Malone. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly different vibes off of those two. Just a bit, Uh, just a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fred's been awesome, man. Just like a very easy to root for player. I think it's super easy to root for guys who are smallish um, and then you throw in the undrafted, you throw, you know, Wichita state. It's like, look at their history of producing blue chippers in the NBA. Um, he's, he's just been, he's been really fun. I think he's kind of struggled a little this season aside from that game. Um, but hard to blame them when the Raptors are playing their home games in Tampa. Like th- they got some stuff going on. Yeah. The Raptors have had a very difficult time of it this season. And I think that's far more due to circumstance than them actually having seriously regressed. But that moment from Fred Van Vliet is especially huge in a not as good Raptors season, certainly in comparison to recent years, but a team that has been more disappointing than the Raptors, at least in my book, I would think the most disappointing team in the NBA so far, the Dallas Mavericks, who I believe they've lost six straight at this point. I think so. And Luca is still putting up 28, nine and nine. And the rest of the team has basically not been there. The Mavericks have shot the worst three-point percentage in the league, which given how their offense works and how they were the best offense of all time last year is absurd to me. I thought they would miss Seth Curry. I did not think they would miss him this much. Yeah. Uh, A quick update. They actually did win yesterday. They beat the Hawks. Uh, But as we speak, they're currently down by 24 to the Warriors in the fourth quarter. Looks like they're going to give up about 140 in this game. Um, So they just have problems all over the place right now. You're right. The the Seth Curry thing and just, I mean, I thought Josh Richardson was going to be, I don't know, good. Um, and he has not been um, looking at basketball reference. Their top four guys, Luca's shooting 29% from deep Richardson, 27, Kristaps, 29, Tim Hardaway, almost 40. So I guess the answer is just play Tim Hardaway more. I, I don't know. Like they're, they're, 
they're in some trouble. I think some things will shake out. You know, I don't think it's realistic that Kristaps will keep shooting 29% or Josh Richardson at 27. Um, but they're just not, they're just not there. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know what to make of them. I've only seen them a couple times, but they just don't look right. Well, a team that certainly does not have that particular problem, the Oklahoma City <laughs> Thunder. I thought they were pretty clearly the worst team in the NBA heading into this season. I thought there were a couple of Eastern Conference teams that we haven't gotten to yet, spoiler alert, that would be competing with them for worst in the league. But instead, they started the season out hovering around 500. They're at 9-11 and 11 as of Thursday morning, and... Shea Gilgis Alexander was really good last season, and he's been even better this season. And it's looking like he's going to be an all-star sooner rather than later. I don't think this year, but I would be surprised if he does not have a very robust candidacy for the 2022 All-Star game. I'm with you. There's been a lot of kind of fun things about the Thunder. Um for what it's worth and to toot my own horn, I had them as not the worst team in the West in my, uh, my predictions uh, earlier this year, Um, which isn't saying much because if you look at basketball references, expected win loss based on their offensive and defensive rating, they should be uh, six and 14, 29th out of 30 teams. Um, So, but Shea has been really good. Al Horford can still play Um, every year. It's like, Oh, Al Horford's going to really suck this year. And, he's still playing well um you know dort has been okay he's he's not quite the guy that we saw in the bubble i don't think um but like between shea and Baisley and dort all those guys are 22 or younger um you you got hamadou diallo like they've got a, a fun group of young guys and they're super athletic except for horford um and i don't know I, they're they're fun to watch but I don't know. It's it's not there yet, but Shea is, and that's fun. Up next at number 23, the Miami Heat, and they have had an absolutely brutal run of it this season. Jimmy Butler has missed most of their games, and one of the weird things about this season of basically nothing but weird things, the Heat had a whole bunch of games where they had eight players active which meant that they had enough players active for them to actually keep playing their games when they were dealing with a ton of absences. So unlike the Grizzlies, who we talked about earlier, who just didn't play for 12 straight days, the Heat have already played 21 games, so more than most of the teams in the league, and they're 7-14. and 14. So it's really hard to conceive of the heat really and i'm saying this is the person who writes about the heat for the power rankings every week because they clearly have the talent that they had in the bubble last season but you know we're already 21 games in they've already got 14 losses that are in the record books so for them to be more than a play-in team they're gonna have to really turn it up for the last 50 games of the season and They've also not played that great the last few games where they've actually had people back. So it's interesting for the Heat, especially coming off a season when they literally made the NBA Finals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you said basically everything there is to say, but I, the only thing I'll add is that 
to illustrate your point about how crazy it's been with their roster, they've played 21 games. Duncan Robinson has played in all of them. Kelly Olynyk has played in 20. Precious Achua has played in 21. And that's pretty much it. Like Iggy has played in most of them. Bam has played in most of them. But the, it's just been complete chaos up and down their roster. And you know it'll take some time for some of those guys to get back in shape too. And another team that's dealing with a very chaotic season, the Orlando Magic lost Jonathan Isaac for the season before the season began, and then they lost Markel Fultz a few games into the season, and Nikola Vucevic continues to truck along, continues to play really solid basketball, but beyond him, this team is really struggling with injury, and Aaron Gordon just severely sprained his ankle and looks like he's going to miss four to six weeks. I don't know. It's a weird place for the Orlando Magic to be in right now because it kind of feels like they've been in this same place for three (laughs) seasons where it was like a bit of a house of cards that they kept, you know, holding up by continuing to be the eighth seed. And now it looks like that is kind of starting to crumble a bit. Yeah, um, they started six and two and they are now uh, eight and 14. So I I'm kind of shocked that they were somehow only 24th in our rankings. Uh, One of us must have been way off on them. I think it was two seasons ago where they did literally the same thing. They started six and two, and then they finished the year like 18 and 50 or something like that. Yeah, I think it was two, two or three years ago. They were hot out of the gate, and we were like, hey, wait a minute. And then they were like, just kidding. Let's move on to the Sacramento Kings. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear out for you. You just you just run with this one. All right. So Sacramento Kings, 10 and 11 as of Thursday morning, but 10 and 11 in a super weird way. They started off the season three and one. They looked like they were a great offensive team and a much improved defensive team. And that hasn't exactly held up, <laughs> especially on the defensive end. When I mentioned earlier that Kevin had subtweeted me in the middle of the podcast, that's because he was calling out the Trailblazers for being 29th in defensive rating. And surprise, surprise, the Sacramento Kings are dead last 30th. But their defensive rating was above 120 for a while there, and it's now down to 118.2. So, you know, progress, progress. But I want to talk about Tyrese Halliburton because I want to talk about fun King stuff. And Tyrese Halliburton is the definition of fun King stuff and really just the definition of fun period. Mm-hmm. So I said earlier that Lomelo Ball was one of the rookie of the year front runners. The other one in my mind is Tyrese Halliburton. He's averaging 11 points, four rebounds, five assists a game, 47% from the field, 42% from three, 83% from the line. And that's actually after a slump. He was above 50% from three-point range through the first portion of the season. He's a really smart player. He makes better reads on defense than most of the rest of the Kings, which isn't saying much for the Kings, but is saying a lot for a rookie to actually know where to be on defense and not only knows where to be personally, but has been directing guys on defense 20 (laughs) games into his rookie season. And I think he is plus 100% in the final 10 seconds of every quarter. And you cannot tell me otherwise there was a play in the game the night before we're recording this where Buddy Heald pulled up for a last second heave at the end of the third quarter. 
And Tyrese Halliburton just ran up, caught the ball as it bounced off the backboard, laid it back up in one motion, and just barely beat the buzzer for two points at the end of the quarter that the Kings had absolutely no business getting. So De'Aaron Fox has really turned it on the past 10 games. He's making more of an all-star case for himself, but I just wanted to talk about Tyrese Halliburton because, man, is he fun to watch. Hey, any reason for optimism is worth celebrating, right? Yeah, especially for the Kings. That's right. Moving on, though, I could talk about the Kings all day, but I won't because there are other teams to talk about. The New Orleans Pelicans at 26th. And the thing here is a story that has been discussed quite a bit, but Bears continuing to discuss. I don't know what the deal is with Zion Williamson on the defensive end, because at Duke, he was a roving one through five absolute killer on the defensive end. He scared opposing players there was the one play i will never forget where he closed out to a deandre hutter three-pointer and just blocked it into like the 15th (laughs) row and this was a dude who was the fourth overall pick too and he was such a ridiculous player on the defensive end in college and offensively he's been basically who he was at duke Mm -hmm. just absolutely ridiculous unstoppable wrecking ball his passing hasn't been as good as it was at duke i don't think but Really, what shocked me is just how awful he's been on the defensive end. And at this point, we're in year two. You know, it doesn't seem like it was just an aberration from last year when he was coming back from injury and all that. It really seems like it might be a problem for him. And I was not expecting that coming out of college. Yeah, it's been weird. I mean, some of it, you know, is, I guess, health related. Some of it's probably just that, hey, these are these are adults now. Um, so the level of competition is obviously higher, but I think you can really say the same about the the Pelicans as a whole. Like you've got Zion Lonzo, who's been a typically been a pretty good, well, he's been a good steals guy, at least Steven Adams, like Eric Bledsoe, that's a team that should be okay on defense. I mean, okay to good. And they're 24th in defensive rating. Like they just aren't good and maybe some of that is that it'll take time to figure out what stan van wants them to do but i don't know yeah zion has not been the guy that everyone was hoping and expecting him to be i mean would you have believed coming out of duke that he would be averaging half a block a game just with his the way he gets off the floor and if someone gets an offensive rebound next to him it seems like he should block every single putback attempt ever I think he should be having half a block a quarter. Seriously. Half a block a game. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, disappointing, I guess. It's probably a good way to say it. Well, someone who's been a lot less disappointing on the defensive end in a really shocking way this year. Let's move on to the number 27 Chicago Bulls. And I want to talk about Zach Levine, who I think is also making a decent case for the first-time All-Stars that we've sort of been sprinkling in discussions about throughout this podcast. He's averaging 27-5-5. and He's been the Bulls' offense almost (laughs) by himself. Kobe White's had some good games. Lowry Markinen's had some good games. But really, Zach Levine is their leader on the offensive end. And his defense has gone from atrocious to... Just regular below average, which, you know, given the point that Zach Levine is at in his career, I think this is year seven for him. I was just expecting him to be like one of the five worst defenders in the NBA for his entire career. And he's not there anymore. He's not good. I don't want to belabor the point. He's not good at all. But 
just regular below average with his incredible offensive game is a really good player and maybe an all-star. Yeah, uh, I would like to say that how dare you call him the offense when uh, Thaddeus Young went 16-9-9 one game, 8-11-11 the next game, and 13-8-8 the next game. Uh, So how dare you? You're right. I'm sorry. I will never accept Thaddeus Young slander, so thank you for calling me out on my backdoor potential Thaddeus Young slander, because no slander of any kind of Thaddeus Young will be tolerated on this podcast. I'm happy to help. Um, But no, Zach Levine is i don't even know what you say about him because the same problems that he's had you know in in every year still exist he's averaging four turnovers and five assists as like the lead ball handler and that's not a great ratio um but he's improving and he's shooting 40 percent from deep and he's scoring a lot and they need him to score a lot and you know, scoring efficiently is not something that he had been particularly good at previously. I mean, he's never bad at it, but um, getting better again. I don't know if he's an all-star because I think it's hard to, I think he's got a reputation that's going to hurt him for being a guy who has like a one-to-one assist to turnover ratio and just being a gunner. I think generally that does not get super rewarded in all-star games. So he'll be, he'll be right on the edge though. Let's move now to Zach Levine's former team, the Minnesota Timberwolves, who have had a really rough go of it. And Carl Towns in particular, I just feel awful for him on a personal level, in addition to on a basketball level. His family was ravaged by COVID, and then he actually got COVID himself this season too, just to make terrible matters even worse. So wanted to say that, you know, shout out to Carl Anthony Towns. Hope he's doing as well as he can be in this situation. But certainly the Timberwolves struggle dramatically when he is not out there. And D'Angelo Russell is putting up the maybe the quietest 20 points a game ever, shooting 53% true shooting percentage. So not exactly scoring efficiently either. And D'Angelo was so much fun during that one all-star season on the Nets. And it just feels like he's slowly but steadily been regressing ever since then. Yeah, I almost interrupted you when you started to say, like, do we have to talk about the Wolves? Because, man, they are, I believe, 3-16 and since they started 2-0. and And it feels like they're worse than that somehow. Eesh. They're just... They're just not fun. Anthony Edwards has shown some flashes. That's kind of fun. Malik Beasley has been good. That's kind of fun. Carl Towns has played four games. That's not fun. Ricky Rubio doesn't look like he's having fun. And Ricky Rubio looks like the guy who should be having the most fun in the world. Um, it's it's bleak. It's really bleak. We should move on. <laughs> I will just say quickly before we do move on, though, that Jaden McDaniels has looked really promising on the defensive end, and he was basically just supposed to be a bucket getter kind of player. So for him to be doing well defensively is a positive sign for them. But let's move on to the Washington Wizards at number 29. I think that for the good of the basketball world, that Tim Connolly of the Denver Nuggets and Tommy Shepard of the Washington Wizards need to just 
be locked in rooms where they're on the phone with each other for four hours until they can hammer out the Bradley Beal to Denver for Michael Porter Jr., Gary Harris, and whatever else they need to make the parts work. Because I just don't understand why that trade hasn't happened yet. And I think everybody benefits by those two teams figuring that particular trade out. But it seems like Bradley Beal is pretending that he's happy in Washington now. He keeps saying it. There's, you know, the whole sort of body language doctor thing, which, you know, people trying to judge his behavior on the bench, which is not, you know, the most real thing ever. But, you know, he also does keep saying that he's happy with a situation that isn't great, isn't great for him in really any way. But I mean, if he keeps saying he's happy, I guess he's happy. I guess. I mean nobody should be happy in that scenario, right? Like they are just awful. And then they didn't play for, you know, a week and a half or two weeks or something like that because of, you know, health and safety protocols. But like, they're just so atrocious. And it feels like every time you turn on a game, they are either blowing a lead or they are down by a bunch. Um, And even, I mean, they did beat the Nets. That was really fun. In a game that was regulation game, 149-146. Like, what in the world? Yeah, remember what we said about the Nets defense? Yeah, I guess. Because, I mean, and you knew it was going to be like an all-time Westbrook revenge game, uh, just playing against KD and Harden. Like, what a what a delight that would be for him. Um, and I'm pretty sure he did. I'm pulling up the box score. Yeah, Westbrook had 41. Yeah, he had his best game of the season by orders of yeah. magnitude. Like, it's not even yeah. close between that and his next game. Yeah, so, I mean, it was pretty fluky. And it feels like every time the Wizards win, it's pretty fluky. Uh, they have won two out of three because they did beat Miami. But we were talking about Miami has just been... Miami is not really Miami yet, so I don't, I don't know if that counts. But I just... How Beal can keep saying he's happy just baffles me. And here we are at number 30 with the Detroit Pistons. So the Mason Plumlee contract was one thing, but the Jeremy Grant contract, he apparently was offered the same three-year $60 million deal that he signed in Detroit. Apparently, Denver also offered him that contract, and he turned it down to bet on it himself as someone who could potentially be the lead offensive option for a team. And sure enough, he's averaging 24 points, five rebounds, three assists per game on 45% from the floor, 40% from three, 87% from the line, which as someone who was in the 60s earlier in his career is huge and a really good 59% true shooting percentage. And Jeremy Grant has had an incredible season. And let's not talk about any of the other Detroit Pistons. (laughs) Uh, Deal. I'm fine with not talking about them it's they wow i mean i i there's not words i mean you throw a bunch of money at mason plumley and i don't know i i got nothing they're awful they're just just so awful i am so sad about how the blake griffin experience 
Ugh. looks like it's going to end. Poor guy. Because from him to go from who he was with the Clippers to who he's been this season for the Pistons, it's just, it's sad for everybody involved because we don't get to watch fun Blake Griffin and Blake has to like gut it out through injuries and basically find a way to become a stretch four because he can't move anything close like he used to. Yeah, It's depressing. Here's a wild one for you for Blake Griffin. Uh, dunks by season. His first season, 214. Next season, 192. Next season, 202. Next season, 176. Then the wheels start to fall off. 84, 36, 68, 46, 37, 5 in his 18 games last season. Through 16 games this season, Blake Griffin has not dunked the basketball. Not once. Not once. Wow. (laughs) What a way to end the rankings. (laughs) Yeah, so let's get into some more fun topics before we wrap up here, aka pretty much any other topics. Yeah. So before we wrap up, just wanted to talk briefly about surprises or strange trends in the league so far this year. So let's start with you. Do you have a general sort of league-wide take that doesn't fall into one of the 30 teams that we just spent an hour talking about? I kind of do. I have felt like there is a, obviously COVID is like the cloud hanging over this entire season and will also hang over the poorly uh, thought out all-star game and blah, blah, blah. But the tiny silver lining has been the minutes going to guys who you just wouldn't have seen. And like, just for me, it's, it's kind of like on a personal thing to feel like I'm happy for guys like, Max Struess or Strauss or however you say it in Miami, who, when all these guys are out, he's getting minutes and he's getting shots and he's scoring points. Like who saw that coming? Or with Houston, uh, I don't think Jay Sean Tate was expected to have the role that Jay Sean Tate is having in Houston. Um, but he's there and he's playing pretty well. Like he's had some nice games. Um, it's just, it's been kind of fun to see the way that like necessity breeds creativity or something like that. Um, And these guys go out with health and safety protocols and you realize like, Oh, there's some, there's some fun guys who are getting a chance who wouldn't have gotten a chance. Um, And it's, I don't know. That's kind of heartwarming to me. Um, So that's, that's my fun, strange trend. So I totally agree with that. It is really fun to see these guys get NBA minutes when they might not have gotten NBA minutes otherwise. And as a noted and avowed longtime Isaiah Thomas fan, it's always fun to see underdog players do really well and have their moments. And this is a lot more complicated of a discussion for a whole bunch of different reasons. (laughs) But I think that this is also an excellent case for expanding to 32 teams because even the guys on the end of the bench who were not expected to play at all this season, they're coming in and, you know, they're not obviously as good as the starters, which is why they're bench guys in the first place. But sure. these guys can all play. And yeah. I'm not sure that was true 10 years ago or 15 years ago, but it seems like it's true now that we could have two more teams in the league without really noticeably diluting the talent base at all which, you know, also makes sense because there are a whole bunch of professional leagues in non-American countries that have a bunch of really good basketball players in them. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, the, you can, I don't know, credit whatever you want, whether it's like 
sports specialization as kids or just like the glorification of athletes and and or you know the accessibility that makes them more glorifiable i guess um that's not a word but it is it's useful um word ish yeah the the training regimens everything is just improving so you're getting better athletes and so you know the guys who were fringe nba players before were okay and now the guys who are fringe nba players can step in and you know average 12 and 8 a night if they get 30 minutes but they're just like a tiny bit worse than the guy who can average 15 and 9 and that's the difference so like yeah i i think i'm with you i think part of it is also the move to quote unquote positionless basketball just in the sense that you know a big guy it used to be you would teach him to go down on the block and score on the block and if he was seven feet tall and doing that against much smaller human beings then he could make it to the nba just by doing that yeah but, you know, nowadays there's the emphasis on everybody learning how to shoot and everybody learning how to move the ball and everybody learning how to attack a closeout. That means that, you know, these bigger players just have skill sets that they wouldn't have been trained on, you know, even five years ago at this point. Yeah, well, that kind of leads into something that I know you wanted to touch on, which, you know, those big guys and their skills, because big guys are back, I think. I mean, two of the top three MVP candidates are centers. Yeah. Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic, I think, are... It's funny because it's hard to think of two seven-footers who are more different in terms of the <laughs> fact that Nikola Jokic is not the most athletic person in the world, whereas Joel Embiid is a seven-foot-two athletic specimen in every possible way. Yes. But the reason that Joel Embiid is an MVP candidate this year when maybe he wasn't in past years is because he's gotten so much better at passing and passing out of double teams and being able to create looks for other players. And obviously that's what Nikola Jokic does better than everyone. But the other thing about Jokic is, you know, when he's playing in a defensive system that, you know, nowadays all NBA defenses are switching a lot more, which you know, on the one hand, yes, Nikola Jokic can get roasted by faster point guards in the pick and roll. But on the other hand, positioning on the defensive end is a lot more important than athleticism. I guess, no, it's not fair to say that, but in the sense that positioning is relatively more important than athleticism nowadays as opposed to five years ago. And the one thing that Nikola Jokic is always going to know is where he should theoretically be. Maybe he can't get there because yeah. it's, you know, 10 feet away and therefore it's going to take him five seconds to traverse that 10 feet, but he knows he's supposed to be there. And that helps. And, you know, that versus, you know, getting destroyed by, say, Shaq, who Jokic is big enough physically to guard Shaq, but, you know, that kind of one-on-one defense where Jokic is more likely to get roasted is less of a thing, I think, than it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago where the league was a lot yeah. more isolation-based. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty fair. Um and you know, even for as as like I don't, I don't want to say as bad as Jokic's defense is cuz I don't think he's like the worst defender or anything because just by virtue of being 7 feet tall, you have an effect uh as a, as an interior defender, but for as quote unquote bad as his defense is, his offense is that good. Like it's it's his offense is so much better then his defense is bad, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because his offense is like, 
I don't know. I, I I think he's the best offensive player in the NBA this year. I was going to say, like, I don't know who's better. I mean, maybe you could maybe argue Beal, who, by the way, is averaging 35 points a game. 35 points a game with negative spacing from his teammates. Right. With with nobody else who can do anything uh, around him. I mean, I think the argument for best offensive player, you could put Durant in there. You have to put Durant in there, I think. Yeah, uh, he's shooting 45% from deep, which I guess I didn't realize. Um, you know, Embiid is definitely a great offensive player. I don't I, I think it for me, it's it's probably Beal, Durant, LeBron, and, uh, and Jokic as the best offensive players. I think, you know, Paul George is having a ridiculous offensive season. Kawhi has been incredible the last about week um but i like i don't it's just no offense to them i don't believe it from either of them and maybe it's more that like you know particularly with Jokic and lebron those are probably the two best passers in the nba um i i can't think of uh, trey young's a good passer um luca's a good passer i don't think either of them are better than than LeBron or Jokic. Uh, to be clear, I think LeBron is better passer than Jokic, but only by a little bit. Um, and that's crazy because I think LeBron is the best passer the NBA has ever seen. Um, so I don't know. It's he's Jokic, I think, is maybe number two offensive player, but I would accept the argument that he's number one. And the fact that you're even having that discussion versus imagine three years ago saying a center is the best <laughs> offensive player in the NBA. Literally three years ago, imagine saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, I was three or four years ago, I guess, that it was like, boy, which uh, Eastern European center should Denver keep between him and, and Nurkic? And like, Nurkic is good too, but Nurkic ain't Jokic. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> uh, all right that made sense I yeah think. uh and on that note anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap up i am uh i'm good i yeah i'm good i'm satisfied with a, an eastern european thing to end my my time here you don't want to end with colin sexton he's been good man i, I don't know i i i feel like if we start talking about the Cavs backcourt i'm gonna have a lot I'm going to have too much to say because I just sent like 3000 words of emails to a friend of mine about Darius Garland and how, you know, like, do they want to, should they want to keep Garland around? His floater game is really good. His shot has looked good. Um, but as it stands right now, it's, it seems like if you're going to have one undersized guard in your backcourt, it's Sexton. Like he can beat you off the dribble better than Garland can. He's a better defender than Garland. Um, neither. I mean, Garland's a better passer, but it just seems like Sexton is improving much quicker than I expected. Anyway. Um, he's really good. Uh, I don't think he's an all-star this year. I think he's close depending on how, you know, positions shake out in the East, but, um, I don't know. I think if the Cavs won a couple more games, the case would be made for him over Levine. Uh, but the Cavs are are uh, regressing thanks to Andre Drummond. Well, on the positive front, at least the fact that you're asking the question of should we trade Darius Garland question mark rather than we should trade Darius Garland period means that this year's <laughs> gone a lot better than last year. 
it has gone a lot better than last year. I think we've covered it. Do you have any more King's takes? Oh, I have many more King's takes, but (laughs) I know it's far later on your end than it is on my end, so I will not keep you until four in the morning. That's fair. And to be clear, uh, while I do love talking about basketball, I do not want to talk about the Kings till 4 a.m. I mean, fair enough. (laughs) All right. Well, he is Kevin Nye. You can find him on Twitter at Kevin P. Nye, K-E-V-I-N-P-N-Y-E. And of course, you can find his work on hashtag basketball.com and on the hashtag basketball.com power rankings. And be sure to also check out all of the other writers on the power rankings. We have a few new writers this year. So we have Nate Smith on the Los Angeles Lakers, Gerard Fazakurli on the Los Angeles Clippers, Jordan Christmas on the Philadelphia 76ers, Nick Paradise on the Denver Nuggets, Tony Jacobson on the Phoenix Suns, Ethan Krieger on the Indiana Pacers, Connor Hay on the Memphis Grizzlies, Chiara Smith on the Portland Trail Blazers and the Golden State Warriors, Wayne Thompson on the Charlotte Hornets, Max Nathan on the Houston Rockets, Jordan Kligman on the Toronto Raptors, Kevin Brown on the Orlando Magic, Jordan Schultz on the Chicago Bulls and the New Orleans Pelicans, Joe Sinke on the Detroit Pistons, and Tyler Metcalf, Joseph Mamone, Kevin Nye, and myself on numerous teams. And you can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using, especially since this is the first episode in a while. Would really appreciate some ratings and reviews from all of you. But that's about all we have here for today. So thanks so much for listening. 